it's just another example, frankly, of how resistance to, in this case, resistance to critical race theory and looking at institutional patterns hurts the ability to advance the gospel. Welcome to another episode of News with Nicola, a Faithfully Magazine podcast brought to you by Faithfully Media. I'm your host, Nicola A. Menzi, Managing Editor at FaithfullyMagazine.com. In this episode of News with Nicola, we take a look at three items closely related to everyone's new favorite subject, critical race theory, or CRT. We look at the rash of state laws banning critical race theory from being taught in classrooms, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's strange and unusual decision to not offer tenure to Nicole Hannah-Jones, head of the 1619 Project. And finally, we look at the Southern Baptist Convention, which has its annual meeting in a few days. To help us sort through some CRT questions, we talk with Dr. Glenn E. Bracey, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Villanova University. A quick reminder here, only Faithfully Magazine partner subscribers can access the full, unedited video and transcript of my conversation with Dr. Bracey. So go to faithfullymagazine.com and hit subscribe to enjoy full access. First up, state laws banning critical race theory. Republican lawmakers in at least 15 states have passed or are proposing laws that would ban critical race theory, and in some cases, the New York Times 1619 Project from School Curricula. These state bills echo an executive order former President Trump handed down in 2020 that called for patriotic education and another executive order that put limitations on diversity training for federal workers. By the way, President Biden has canceled both of those executive orders. What these state bills are attempting to regulate, on paper anyway, is how educators talk about racism, sexism, and other social issues in light of the nation's history. And it's not just K-12 teachers being impacted. Higher ed instructors in several states are facing similar regulations. Where did this sudden preoccupation with CRT come from? Why is history education getting so much attention now in the political arena? Well, according to an article on the New Republic's website, we can thank, quote, an obscure documentarian, unquote, named Christopher Rufo for this witch hunt against CRT. According to the New Republic article, and I'm quoting here, last September, 36-year-old Christopher Rufo landed a slot on Tucker Carlson tonight. Knowing the president would be watching, he sounded the alarm about an ideology almost as obscure as he was, critical race theory. Rufo, who describes the theory as the notion that the United States was founded on white supremacy and oppression, begged Donald Trump to take action. Critical race theory, he warned, had become the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy. The next morning, Rufo got a call from Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff. Just a few days later, the White House issued a bizarre memo instructing public agencies to root out the theory from government trainings. Rufo has reportedly provided feedback on at least 10 of the critical race theory bills moving through state legislatures. Ironically, these state bills don't actually explain, truthfully anyway, what critical race theory is. Topic number two, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Nicole Hannah-Jones is the architect of the New York Times 1619 Project that examines the history of the United States by positioning its founding in 1619 with the arrival of the first enslaved Africans at Jamestown. Hannah-Jones was set to join UNC's Hussman School of Journalism and Media in July as the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism, a position that has always led to tenure. 
until now. Reportedly, according to the 19th, after pushback from conservatives, the Board of Trustees denied her tenure despite approval from faculty and the Tenure Committee, offering a five-year teaching contract instead. Currently, UNC is in talks with Hannah Jones' legal team in a bid to avoid a federal lawsuit over their failure to offer her tenure. Initially, it was presented that conservatives had been putting pressure on UNC officials over Hannah Jones' tenure application. However, it has since been revealed that Walter Hussman Jr. may have had something to do with all of this. Hussman, a newspaper publisher, is a major donor to UNC, which named their journalism school after him. Although Hussman denies that he pressured anyone at UNC about Hannah Jones' potential tenure, he did admit that he sent several emails expressing his concerns to the dean of UNC's journalism school, to UNC's chancellor, and to a vice-chancellor at the university who is also responsible for the UNC foundation that receives donations for the school. Hussman, who insists that he did not threaten to revoke his $25 million pledge to the school, said he was concerned about how Hannah Jones's work would clash with his vision for the school and what it teaches. His emails actually reveal that Hussman took issue with the 1619 Project's telling of U.S. history and how Hannah Jones allegedly overlooked the roles of whites to challenge racism during the Civil Rights Movement. This allegation, of course, is unfounded. Hannah Jones has long described race-beat reporters, among them black and white individuals, as heroes because of their commitment to such important work. By the way, Hannah Jones is black and Hussman is white. If you want to understand what's going on in terms of how disinformation and misinformation is being used to disparage academics, journalists, scholars, and faithful Christians, and also being used to manipulate certain segments of the population into thinking a certain way without questioning anything, then you must read this opinion and analysis article published by Slate. It's titled, The Conservative Disinformation Campaign Against Nicole Hannah-Jones. Here's an excerpt from that article. Our research has repeatedly shown that these types of lies, moral accusations, misrepresentations, and white racial appeals are often used to justify hate and harassment. In this case, disinformation is being used to deny a decorated black journalist's tenure and ban the teaching of America's racial history in our schools. Of course, it's possible that some people repeating these talking points are doing so in good faith. But what distinguishes disinformation from its less malvolent cousin, misinformation, is an unwillingness to acknowledge when one is wrong. Even given copious evidence that their characterization of critical race theory often isn't correct and that their targets often aren't even examples of critical race theory, much of the conservative establishment has doubled down on its campaign. This serves conservatives well. Overly broad interpretations of critical race theory instill fear in educators and close off much discussion of white supremacy. Even as these appeals to whites shore up the conservative base against the common enemy of liberals. The repetition of the same talking points by pundits, think tanks, and policymakers alike also speaks to a strategically engineered, coordinated campaign. Now, that's a bit from the Slate article titled, The Conservative Disinformation Campaign Against Nicole Hannah-Jones.
I'm sharing this information, okay? Because I don't want you to be manipulated. Lord knows I've had enough of hearing about CRT to tell you the truth, but there is just something really wicked going on and I don't believe the inspiration is heaven sent, okay? Unless the ninth commandment has been rewritten. You don't have to like CRT. You don't even have to know anything in depth about CRT to talk honestly about race in this country. But please, do not be manipulated into senseless fear. If you are a believer, we're not to be taken over by fear, right? We have to be sober-minded, not walk around drunk on lies. We're supposed to be salt and light. So please, do not get caught up. And if you can help it, don't let your friends and family members get caught up in this hysteria either. And finally, topic number three, the Southern Baptist Convention. Described as the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., the SBC is kind of hard to ignore. In addition to losing almost half a million members last year, not to mention several notable black pastors publicly disassociating from the denomination, the SBC has now lost both professionally and personally Dr. Russell Moore. If you're not familiar with Russell Moore, starting in 2013, he was the president of the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the public policy entity of the SBC. Moore got heat from within the SBC when he publicly criticized then-candidate Trump in 2016, and again when he condemned that shameful insurrection attempt at the Capitol. But according to the Religion News Service, reporting on a letter leaked by an ERLC trustee, Moore faced the most aggression, not for his public remarks on Trump, but was harassed by a small yet powerful minority among key conservatives and members of the denomination's governing executive committee for, quote, the stance he had been taking on the SBC's race and sexual abuse issues. Because of his advocacy, Moore said he was, quote, attacked with the most vicious guerrilla tactics, end quote. And as the RNS interprets his letter here, veiled threats delivered with mafia-like menace. What's wilder, as if Moore's revelations aren't wild enough, is that the former ERLC president states that he and his family received constant threats from white nationalists and white supremacists, including within our convention. His words here, folks. Moore adds, some of them have been involved in neo-Confederate activities for years. Some are involved with groups funded by white nationalist nativist organizations. Some have just expressed a raw racist sentiment behind closed doors, end quote. And apparently, these racist elements posing as Christians within the SBC have a really low tolerance for, quote, black girls. If you read this RNS article, you'll see that Moore relates how an SBC leader questioned Trillian Newbell's commitment to the SBC's beliefs on gender roles by dismissively referring to this grown woman and child of God as that black girl. It eventually came out that former SBC president Paige Patterson was apparently the one who so casually let these racist remarks roll off his tongue. Patterson, of course, refutes the allegations made by Moore and two other witnesses. 
Despite all of its so-called progress over the last 176 years, the Southern Baptist Convention is still very much an ideologically white institution. The people Moore describes in his letter aren't among the regular folk. These are the powerful and influential people calling shots and swaying minds within this large Protestant body. Now, since the report on Moore's leaked letter, Others have come forward to verify his claims. Most notably, Philip Bethencourt has offered himself up as a whistleblower. Bethencourt teaches at the SBC Southern Seminary and is a former vice president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, where Moore was previously president. The timing of all of this, of course, isn't coincidental. The SBC's annual meeting is in a few days, and top of the agenda are sexual abuse, women preaching, and critical race theory. The SBC, a majority white denomination where some races still feel comfortable apparently, has been backsliding on its 2019 resolution that called for, quote, critical race theory and intersectionality to only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to scripture, end quote. Now, if you've been paying attention in the last year, at least, you know that critical race theory has become a point of contention for the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention, along with other white-led Christian institutions, has been doing its part in the misinformation and disinformation campaign against critical race theory, which, again, folks, you do not need to embrace to pursue racial reconciliation. Now, prominent example of how the SBC has been uh, playing its part in this CRT witch hunt is that a letter produced and signed by SBC's, the SBC's six white seminary presidents denouncing CRT as incompatible with their doctrinal beliefs, incompatible with the gospel, unbiblical. Now, it's been reported that at least 16,000 messengers or voting representatives of SBC churches had pre-registered for the annual meeting in Nashville. This meeting is important for a lot of reasons, obviously, but I'm actually interested in how it will work out for race relations within the SBC as they move ahead. This is a powerful and influential entity. It's very likely that whatever happens at this annual convention will greatly impact this whole disinformation campaign being waged on the surface against CRT, but that we know at its core is actually about political power and white supremacy. So to help us make sense of some of these things, such as what CRT is and isn't, how it can be useful for Christians, and what to make of the SBC's influence in this area, we turn to some of my conversation with Dr. Glenn E. Bracey. Bracey is an assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. Dr. Bracey is an expert on the subjects of race and social movements and race and the law. I first became aware of Dr. Bracey in 2017 when he published his research on how white evangelical churches use race tests on people of color. If you don't know about that paper, you can find both the article and the follow-up interview with Bracey on faithfullymagazine.com. Bracey also works with Michael Emerson and Chad Brennan at the Racial Justice and Unity Center. Bracey also has a book that he's working on looking at race in Christian context titled Ghosts in the Room. The ironic thing is, uh, a lot of these opponents, these anti-CRT people, they can tell you that, you know, they hate it, it's bad, you know, 
it makes white people all racist and, you know, black people are stuck in this particular uh, predicament. But then they never tell you what CRT is. They never give you a working definition so you know what you're supposed to be mad about, what the root of it is. So maybe what's the very simplified, basic version of critical race theory? So critical race theory is a theoretical perspective born out of the law school, uh, born out of law schools in the late 1970s through the 1980s, that looks at how race is, uh, how race shapes the law and how the law shapes racial dynamics in society. That's it in a nutshell. Based on how we initially met, right, uh, you were doing a field study, I believe, on racial dynamics within white evangelical Christian spaces. So you're coming from that background. So I take it you've been looking at, and I also think you did some work recently with Barna dealing with race. So you're looking at those spaces, and those spaces seem to be the most vocal about pushing back uh, against CRT. What is it you think they're missing? Because a lot of times they're not defining it and they're focusing on, I feel like maybe two aspects that they're pushing back that, oh, it makes every you know white person in America racist. And it says, you know, African-Americans are forever going to face racism. Like this is just a reality. In fact, I feel like that's what I see is the two main things they're kind of pushing against and refusing to go deeper on. But what are the, the common arguments you see and that you think, you know, people who are serious about seeing how CRT can actually help us work through some stuff that we should also maybe trying to meet them, you know, middle of the road on and communicate? Okay, so let me start by thinking through their argument. I would say that what you're arguing, what you what you said is their argument is true. Uh, one, that they feel like it makes all white people racist. They really resent that. And they reject the notion that Black people will always be struggling against racism. Part of that, especially part of the first claim, is a sense that because racism is immoral and they have defined racism as sinful, they want there to be some culpability um, to racism. In other words, they want some, they want racism to be an affirmative uh, action at all times. And they want to resist the notion that that our systems already reproduce racial inequality and that that's something that people are responsible for. And that leads me, I guess, into the things that we could we could learn from critical race theory. And that is that you don't need overt bigots to reproduce racial inequality. So there are systems that we've put in place, sometimes our uh, definition of a qualified person, for instance could have could embed cultural biases around someone who, for instance, has the money to do an unpaid internship first, right? That's the kind of thing that embeds a bias that doesn't that's not bigotry driven. It's just an embedded bias, one that is going to have a racially disparate impact through class in that case. So learning to see where our institutions have internal have have a bias built into them, that reproduces racial inequality is something that I think CRT can show the church and that the church has an interest in learning because the church is invested or should be invested in preventing exploitation, in preventing inequality because we're all made equally in the image of God. So that's one of many things I think critical race theory uh, can be helpful to the church with. 
So in terms of holding up the, the tenets uh, of CRT and looking at the core, you know, of Christianity, uh, where do you see there's overlap or some type of meshing? I see it in multiple places. First, uh, the notion that for Christians, we're made in the image of God. For critical race theory is the notion that race is socially constructed, meaning that we are not fundamentally different creatures. We are all one. Um, that there's that our racial differences are are a product of history and not a product of our nature or of our creation. That's one. Two, I think that they share, uh, like I said before, an interest in preventing exploitation. Right. That the church is. I mean, I, I don't think you have to dig very far in the Bible to see uh, prohibitions against exploiting your neighbor, exploiting uh, foreigners, exploit. You know, you could go on. Um, and critical race theory is also concerned about preventing exploitation. So whether that happens uh, individually through uh, prejudice or bigotry, or whether that happens institutionally, I think the church and CRT agree that that's something that they want to prevent. Uh, there seems to be a lot of concern that, uh, you know, they say CRT is, at its root is Marxist. Um, and a lot of Christians. <laughs> and it's also a simplification, too, right, of, of that. So what do you say to that when a Christian says, you know, it's, isn't CRT Marxist? Okay. So first of all, CRT and Marxism are two very different things. Very, very different things. Marxism is concerned primarily about economic exploitation. Critical race theory is concerned primarily about racial exploitation. The thing that they have in common is that, and I keep coming back to this point, is that they're both concerned about exploitation. And so, and, and the other thing that they have in common is that they see people, they understand that society has structured people to be in different uh, strata. So people are, people have in Marxism, you're, you might be a capitalist or you might be part of the proletariat, you might be a worker, and your position in, this, in the economic structure determines your interest. In CRT, your racial position might determine uh, some of your interest vis-a-vis racialized institutions. I can go into that if I need to, but I, I don't want to sound too much like an academic uh, right. <laughs> right now. So they're concerned about exploitation. They recognize that people are positioned in society unequally, and being positioned in society unequally produces the possibility of exploitation. Both want to, to do, do away with that. but that's the extent to which they to which they agree. CRT and Marxism are very, very different things. And the church is, to the extent that, that critics of CRT are calling it Marxism, that is, I think, a disingenuous argument. Yeah, I would use that word, I think, to describe a lot of the arguments that seem to rise to the top to argue against CRT. And the wild thing is, right, we didn't even start, you know, us regular folk outside of academia didn't start talking about CRT until like a year or so ago. And all of a sudden, it's like the golden word everywhere. And so for personally with your work, you are in academia, you look at um, racial situations, especially as it pertains to the church and whatnot. So how do you uh, use aspects of CRT or, or use CRT as a framework in your work? For me, critical race theory lets me look at look at how race is reproduced in the church. Uh, racial inequality, in particular, is reproduced in the church. Racial segregation 
is reproduced in the church in the absence of explicit bigotry. I think if if I were only if I were not using a critical race theory lens, then I would be either forced to call the church bigots because of the persistent segregation, the persistent inequality that comes out of the church, or I would be mystified as to how these things happen. But because I can use critical race theory to look institutionally, to look at things like uh, how the pattern of Bible studies at people's homes has racial impact, or how uh, different racialized performances, and this in one of my articles, uh, race tests, I talk about the different racialized performances that white people do in the presence of people of color that often leads people of color to leave white churches or funding mechanisms, or there's all kinds of things that reproduce racial inequality in the absence of explicit bigotry that I think the church has an interest in solving. And frankly, if, even if I wasn't concerned about the church, which I am as a Christian concerned about the church, as someone concerned about society in general, the church is so large, is so powerful, is so well-funded, is such a, a cultural driver that if the church is reproducing racism, then there's no hope for the country to stop reproducing racism, um, racial inequality in particular. So to me, the church is the, is the fundamental place. It's the place where you start and say, God wants to get this right. We want to get this right. And so as we root out bigotry uh, and as we root out the way that sin can work in, in conscious and unconscious ways, we also need tools like critical race theory to say, hey, we have set in motion some things that we don't want to continue. This is how we interrupt that pattern. And, you know, at the same time here, the kicker for me is, like I said, you know, a lot of Christians weren't even thinking about CRT a year ago. And there are a lot of, you know, for example, the racial reconciliation movement, right? That's been going on for a couple of decades. I had never heard CRT. I would think those folks would be looking at CRT. But I never heard that mentioned in the books I've been reading, etc. So the question then I have is, do I even need to be focused, concerned with the CRT framework, understanding it top down to participate in my church's racial reconciliation efforts? Wow. Okay. so one thing before I get to that, I do want to say the church has been focused on critical race theory for several years now. There's been statements, I mean, you know, the John MacArthur's uh, statement on social justice and the gospel, uh, the very first denial is that critical race theory, one of the first denials, I should say, is that critical race theory is uh, is useful for, I, I can't remember the exact words uh, here, but that was a 2018 statement. Of course, uh, the Southern Baptists made statements in 2019. So conservative Christians have been, I think, hearing about critical race theory from probably from secular colleges first and then hearing it in, in uh, their institutions next. And I think we're in angst about the things that we talked about before, the notion that white people can be participating in racism without, without being bigots. And so they wanted to push back against that in their institutions, right? So that, that's been going on for some time. Now, do you need to understand critical race theory top down uh, in order to participate in racial reconciliation? No, <laughs> no, you don't. Um, uh, I mean, critical race theory, it is, a, it is a relatively small 
largely previously obscure movement in legal in the legal academy that has made its way into other parts of academia that helps us understand and analyze society. But it's not required that everybody read through all of these like law journals and everything else to get a sense of what critical race theory is. It's enough to know that race is important, that race is not biologically real, that race shapes our lives, and that our social institutions reproduce racial inequality. That's enough. And I want to get into, you mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention. At the same time, you mentioned how powerful the U.S. church is. Uh, The Southern Baptist Convention, of course, is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., and they've got their annual meeting coming up in a few days. And at least two of the major issues they will be looking at is likely gender, right? Women ordination, uh, sexual abuse, and uh, race. And they've been failing miserably. We've seen in the media, at least in the last year or so, when it comes to handling sexual abuse cases properly. And then also uh, with race, you know, we had a few black pastors say, I got to go. You guys, you guys are are just bent on getting it wrong. You know, when I look at it, I'm like, hmm, this is a denomination founded out of slavery. So from the very beginning, there's been this instinctive, I don't know, idea to protect a certain way of thinking, a certain way of doing things. Even though, as we've seen in the past few decades, as a body, they've made steps toward, you know, acknowledging uh, that they've done horribly on race in the past, apologizing um, to their non-white members. But at the same time, it's like uh, there's certain elements, it seems, according to, I don't know if you've seen Russell Moore's letter as well, according to what he experienced and what he says, they're white nationalist elements within this body. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you make of, of what's going on with the SBC and, and race? I know that's a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is a lot. And I will just say that it's a place where critical race theory, if they embraced it, would actually be really helpful. Because one of the tenets of critical race theory is intersectionality. It's the notion that, you, that our different social locations allow us to see things differently and to see how power works differently in particular. And if the SBC, uh, and and I would say also that it is a biblical idea. A lot of people think that intersectionality is not a biblical idea. I argue that it is based on uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and the notion of how Christ constructed or God constructed our body, uh, the body of Christ. So if they drew on intersectionality and allowed the people who had been uh, suffered sexual abuse, more of a voice. If they allowed the people of color, pastors of color in particular, more of a voice in thinking about critical race theory, in thinking about the way that the that the SBC is structured, et cetera, then they probably would have handled these situations a lot better. It's just another example, frankly, of how resistance to in this case, resistance to critical race theory and looking at institutional patterns hurts the ability to advance the gospel. That's ironic because they've been saying CRT works against, and, you know, and, <laughs> focusing on the gospel. CRT is, I, I have said in, in, in other contexts that, I mean, well, I mean, you can see it since the, since the 1950s, let's say, that one of the biggest harms, I would say, to advancing the gospel has been the racism in the church, right? 
that people of color are looking and saying, you know, I, 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 I like this Jesus guy, but I really don't like what the white church is doing. Uh, the white church is hostile to us. We don't want to be a part of that, et cetera. And so it's been a hindrance to the gospel, a hindrance to reconciliation, a hindrance to unity in the body of Christ. And by it, I mean the commitment to whiteness in uh, the majority white church, not critical race theory. Critical race theory is a way to deal with that and, and, and actually advance the gospel. And that's what this is, right? This push against CRT, just like back in the day, the push against desegregation or whatever, or abortion or whatever, you know, that led to the moral majority and, and all this stuff. Yeah. It's just a manifestation of, of a protection, an effort to protect whiteness. Yeah. You know, the states that are passing these laws saying you can't teach this, this and that in the classroom. It's not really about CRT. It's about, it's about avoidance. It's about, it's yeah? a, exactly. It's about avoidance. It's about what academics might call uh, militant ignorance, uh, a desire to not know, and a, a means by which to not know. And so if you prevent this discussion, then you can move along innocently, quote unquote innocently, still benefiting from the injustice without having your conscience called upon. And it's, again, another irony that the church would be setting itself up to prevent people's consciences from being called upon around something that we acknowledge in the form of racism, we acknowledge as evil. Like, why would we not want people's consciences to be pricked around something that we know is evil? It just doesn't make sense. But it's, it's clearly about protecting white feelings. There's no question about that. And so I guess uh, to wrap up here, Dr. Bracey, going forward, this whole argument of the papers, the blog posts, the state laws about CRT, it's, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And, you know, once the SBC holds their annual meeting and they take certain actions, that's going to be all over the news as well. So, you know, people who are really concerned, curious, you just want to know how to tread going forward. What are some things we should just keep in mind? Things to keep in mind would be that critical race theory is, if, if, we're, if we're just thinking about critical race theory, critical race theory is not a boogeyman, it's not an enemy, it's actually a means for seeking reconciliation and fairness and equality in Christ. That's one. Two, I think an, an underappreciated aspect of critical race theory is that uh, its founders were many of them were Christians who were using, a lot of them using Christian tropes. I mean, in, in Derek Bell's case, he wrote a, his final book is called Gospel Flyers. And it's about how the black church tradition has allowed us to overcome institutional racism. Uh, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christianity um, drawn upon in critical race theory. It is not hostile to the church. And the other thing I would say is to remember that different voices speak from different places, and it's important to hear from every place within the body of Christ. People who are marginalized through racism or through sexual abuse or through immigration status or what have all of those types of, uh, of things, we need to hear not just from the dominant folks, we need to hear from people who have been traditionally marginalized and are still marginalized in our, in, in our body because we, we should treat all of our siblings equally. 
That's that should be our fundamental commitment. Thanks for tuning into this episode of News with Nicola, where we aim to keep things real, relevant, and faithful. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video or read the transcript of my interview with our guest, head to faithfullymagazine.com. However, you must be a Faithfully Magazine partner subscriber to access these features. If you're not already a member, just click the subscribe button on the website. Finally, I want to know what you're reading, watching, or listening to, which means I want you to email me your thoughts on current events. I also want you to tell me about the books, movies, music, and shows you've recently encountered that you love or believe others should desperately avoid. Drop me a line at podcast at faithfullymagazine.com. If you sound like you know what you're talking about, I just might invite you to join me on the show. This is Nicola A. Menzi, Managing Editor at FaithfullyMagazine.com, hoping I'm leaving you informed and inspired. Till next time.